Today on Onward to Victory, we're going to talk about one of the heroes of the 1913 Notre Dame football team. Yes, Irish fans, if that year rings a bell, it's because that was the year that quarterback Gus DeRay and his buddy Knut Rockney shocked the collegiate football world with the advent of the forward pass in a huge upset win over the vaunted Army squad. But we're going to talk about a different player on the team, the center and Greenfield, Indiana native, Al Feeney. You know, the guy who snapped the ball to DeRay, who would then throw it to Rockney. No worries, folks. I hadn't heard of him either. But you don't want to miss this one. Buckle up your chin straps, football fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, football fans, Irish fans. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I'm your host, Alex Painter. Welcome to episode 37. On behalf of the show, I really hope you had a lovely holiday season, a Merry Christmas, and a safe and happy new year. Folks, we did it. 2020 is officially in the rear view mirror. And I know most of us are of the mind to enjoy and live every single day to its fullest, but I still have a sneaking suspicion there may be a few among us who are eager to put that year behind us. But anyway, thank you for tuning into the show. I don't know why, it just feels like it's been a really long time since there's been a new episode, and I guess that's because, well, we've had a whole holiday season between them. But I'm really excited about this episode. We deal quite a bit in the obscure in this show, and even some of our more obscure subjects do tend to be kind of famous in their own right, but not so much for the subject of this episode. In fact, from my vantage point, and I think you all have a good sense that I tend to get pretty far in the weeds, I could make an argument that the subject of this episode is long forgotten. Center Albert Feeney. But please, you can call him Al. Perhaps for some of you, the name may rest in the deepest corridors of your memory banks. Rest assured, we will talk about why that may be, and it's very possible that it's not even football-related. So let's give Al his day in the sun. But before we jump into the show, just a few things. First, at the time this episode was being recorded, your Irish have just wrapped up a 10-2 season. And though they qualified for a berth in the college football playoff, a date against number one ranked Alabama, they were dispatched fairly handily. I know plenty of folks, myself included, who were incredibly let down by this game, although in my heart of hearts, the end result wasn't necessarily shocking, but I'm not here today to talk about that. And I am actually working diligently on a future episode about something I see come up time and time again. And that is, is Notre Dame's recruitment and perhaps even retention affected by their rigorous academic standards? That's a reason that gets waved 
fairly frequently around Notre Dame circles. You've probably heard it yourself. I have some ideas, but I really want to try to tackle this one head on uh, as intelligently as possible, possibly even with some data to back any argument. But many folks offer that, again, the academic rigorous standards as a reason that we are typically feeling this way after a season has ended. And though Brian Kelly seemed less than humbled in the post-game presser after the Alabama game, which turned off many folks, myself included, if I'm to be 100% honest, I will agree with him in the sense that him not being able to beat Clemson and Alabama, at least consistently, because of course Notre Dame did beat Clemson earlier this year, albeit it was a Trevor Lawrence-less Clemson team, but that is a shared problem that 98% of the other coaches in the country have. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I might even crowdsource it. I'd love to make that kind of more of a collaborative effort between all of us. What are our thoughts on this topic? And again, this is not an excuse for how the team played or didn't play in the final two games of the season, but I am always one seeking context. And this is the first time in program history, I'll repeat, program history, that Notre Dame has reeled off four consecutive seasons of at least 10 wins. And as we are probably keenly aware, Notre Dame's history playing football is pretty good. So I do think that is something. Second, if you haven't already, jump into however you're listening to this show and check out the previous episode, the centennial celebration of George Gipp. Now I apologize as the audio isn't as sharp as it normally is, I have no idea why. Maybe you didn't even notice. I did for some reason, but it is really good. And if you'd like to jump over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory to check out the pictographic series I put together called In the Footsteps of the Gipper. I humbly think it's also really, really good. It basically goes blow for blow to commemorate the Gipper's final few months of life. And now that the calendar has now moved into 2021, I will again, somewhat humbly put forth that I think Onward to Victory gave George Gipp the very best treatment of any Notre Dame or sports outlet in the entire country to celebrate George Gipp's centennial celebration of his 1920 season and his untimely death. Anyways, thirdly, a heartfelt thank you to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans, the folks who keep the show advertisement-free, subsidized, growing, appreciated, on the air, you name it. These are the folks who have donated money in a very difficult 2020 to help the show, and are, as far as I'm concerned anyways, the biggest Notre Dame football fans out there. The Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans consist of Michael Finan, of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. The PayPal site, you can make a one-time donation, and the Patreon site, if you want to just make a small donation or a large donation, whatever donation you'd like on a monthly basis, you can do it there. But please note that 100% of the funds that are raised by the show go back into the show. All right, now on to our man, Albert George Feeney. First, he's been right under all of our noses the entire time, and we didn't even see him. Well, what do I mean by that? 
Well, if any of you are familiar with the logo of the show, at least the first one I used anyway, and it's still the primary logo, I utilized the 1913 team picture of the Notre Dame football team. It is very recognizable in the sense that Knut Rockney is sitting in the middle of the photograph, holding the football. At this time, he's a player. Again, this is several years before he took over as head coach, and he was the star end on the team. Now, if you need to, pause this podcast, don't worry, I'll forgive you, and open your Google Images up on your browser and search 1913 Notre Dame football. If you got to do it, go do it. Might help set the stage a little bit. But if you do that, the image that naturally pops up first is just that one, the one that I'm talking about. So again, now if you're looking at the image, you can see Rock. He's sitting in the middle of the middle row, the most prominent spot of the entire photograph. Now, not for nothing, but quarterback and friend of Rock's, Gus Duray, is sitting to the right, just in the middle row again to the right. Feeney is also seated in the middle row, just on the far right, whereas Rock and Duray look confidently and directly into the camera, Feeney kind of has his head tilted down, ever so slightly, perhaps even downplaying what is clearly a muscular, sinewy frame. And that is what I mean when I say that he was right under our noses this whole time. So how did Feeney even cross my purview to begin with? Simply put, serendipity at its finest. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm a really big baseball fan. I have a particular, a particular affinity, pardon me, for the Negro Leagues as well. Which, big overdue news on that front, Major League Baseball is actually finally recognizing the Negro Baseball Leagues as a, quote, major league. So really neat stuff to check out there. But anyways, to kind of set the stage a bit, both of my parents were born in Lima, Ohio, which is situated in northwest Ohio. I, of course, grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is northeast Indiana. But Allen County is where Lima is, Lima, Ohio, which also happens to be the birthplace of a Negro Leagues baseball player whom I have developed quite a fondness for, named Connie Day. His first name was actually Wilson, but he went by Connie, which was his middle name. And when I think of Connie, I'd like to think of him kind of as an Ozzie Smith type well before Ozzie Smith. He was a middle infielder, Connie was, and he had a career that spanned from about 1915 to 1940, a baseball career that is. Uh, But he was an incredibly graceful and flashy player. So go do some digging on Connie if you're interested, actually. If you do some digging on Connie, you'll probably run into things that I wrote. I'm a big fan of his, and I've published a lot of the words that have been dedicated to Connie. But anyway, he moved to Indianapolis, to the Indianapolis area as a child, and he played high school sports at Greenfield High School, just a bit east of Indy, about 25 miles or so. But while I was searching around for anecdotes about Connie, I stumbled on an article from September 1937 from Greenfield's newspaper that described an appearance from a gentleman by the name of Al Feeney, who was described as a former Indiana director of public safety. And it was an appearance that he made at a local Greenfield Kiwanis club. Feeney reminded the audience that he was actually a Greenfield high school football coach over 20 years earlier. So my eyes immediately jumped to the part that highlighted Connie, in which Feeney stated that... You had a colored player, which was the accepted societal term for African-Americans at the time, who could handle a football like an apple and throw it like a bullet, end quote. 
So then members of the crowd ended up like kind of volunteering. Connie Day, it was Connie Day, it was Connie Day. And I thought it was a pretty cool anecdote about one of my favorite infielders who just also happened to be a star high school quarterback. Pretty neat. Anyway, doing my due diligence, I read the whole article, which was short, but right above where Feeney talks about Connie Day, it mentions where Feeney came to coach the Greenfield football team when he was, quote, fresh out of Notre Dame, where he played a lot of football. So as you may have guessed, it was at this point that my antennas shot completely directly up. My worlds had kind of officially collided. And despite not meaning to, well, that's how this episode came about. Kind of funny how history works. So I decided to do some digging on Feeney. And this is what I came up with. So I give you the everywhere man, Al Feeney, the Irish phenom you've never heard of. Albert George Feeney was born to a devout Catholic family on November 12, 1891 in Indianapolis, Indiana. As a youngster, he attended Emmerich Manual High School in Indianapolis, where he starred both in football and basketball. Now, I'd be remiss not to mention that Manual is still open today and is a member of the Indianapolis Public School System, or IPS. Now, I was fairly surprised from the onset of this project to find that Feeney was not listed as a notable alumnus of the school on Wikipedia, but soon discovered the cause of that quickly. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Okay, now, keep that one in mind as I kind of reel off all of the rest of this episode, the contents of this episode, and keep in mind that perhaps one of the biggest reasons that Al Feeney, and from my vantage point, is incredibly forgotten or overlooked is because he doesn't have a Wikipedia page which might sound minor, but however, <laughs> hate to say it like this, but seemingly everyone has a Wikipedia page. He does not. So that needs to change in the future. However, other notable folks who attended Manual include Hooks Doss, a former Major League Baseball player, and the Van Arsdale twins, Tom and Dick, who both played over a decade of professional basketball back in the 1960s and 70s. Anywho, I could not find a ton out as far as his prep athletic career, but I can tell you that he graduated from Manual in 1910, and it was announced that he, and a classmate actually, would attend the University of Notre Dame. Though Albert would eventually grow into a 6-foot, 210-pound frame, he showed his well-roundedness his first year at Notre Dame. After he moved into Corby Hall as a first year, he was actually chosen as an officer in the Corby Hall Literary and Debating Society. So how about that? This is according to the school newspaper, The Scholastic. This was, of course, in addition to dressing for the varsity football team that fall, then coached by Shorty Longman. The team notched a four-win, one-loss, and one-tie record. Shorty Longman, he needs an episode, too. Now, anyways, I digress. Also featured in the team photograph with... Feeney was a fellow freshman, originally from Voss, Norway. Knut Rockney. Anyway, it wouldn't appear as though Feeney played a whole lot of football during that 1910 season, but then again, most freshmen didn't. But he would soon make a fairly immediate impact on the basketball court during the 1910-1911 season for Notre Dame. He started most games at guard. Though this is not what the episode is explicitly about, it is noteworthy that Feeney did play four years' worth of basketball at Notre Dame. He played it very well. Frankly, it's kind of hard to say what was his better sport, football or basketball. But according to the media guide, the team actually went 50-12 and 12 during his tenure 
and he was actually elected captain of the basketball team for his senior season. He also went out for track during the 1911 season. He competed in the hammer throw, so he also competed in multiple years of track as well. So we have a three-sport athlete, but for good measure, he also joined the recreational swim team who would race and do relays in the campus lakes against other teams. So next time you're on campus and you see those lakes, just imagine you know, some turn-of-the-century male swimmers doing relay races in there. Probably not something you see a whole lot today. I found this kind of humorous, but Feeney competed on the Minnows team, which seemed reserved for freshmen because the other teams were called the Sharks, the Dolphins, and the Whales. So the pecking order in those lakes was roundly established. The 1911 version of Notre Dame football went 6-0-2, the two ties coming against Pittsburgh and Marquette. Feeney found a strong fit at center, to which the school newspaper said he played with a, quote, strong, consistent grace. He was actually tried out at guard early in the season, but due to his accurate snapping, he stayed at center. Now, here's a name that may not ring a lot of bells either, but John L. Marks was the head coach of the Notre Dame football team in 1911, replacing Shorty Longman. During Feeney's tenure at Notre Dame, they actually weren't known as the Fighting Irish just yet, a factoid that maybe a lot of you are familiar with, but rather they were called an amalgamation of nicknames, such as the Catholics, the Hoosiers, the Ramblers, or even the Golden Blue. Alright, so let's talk about football at that time. It looked, well, a bit different than it does now, or even how it would in future decades. Padding and protective gear was not the least bit required, and if you wore it, probably didn't do a whole lot for you anyway. Football had many public enemies because, well, it was considered very dangerous. Tactics were really brutish. The rules, and not to mention the shape of the football, actually made it difficult to pass. So nearly 100% of the plays were run plays, which kind of resulted in a scrum pretty much every single play where none of these guys were wearing any kind of protective equipment. So the forward pass actually wasn't made legal until 1906. And at one point, if you threw an incomplete pass, it was deemed a turnover. So, again, they wasn't a whole lot of motivation, aside from the ball being kind of an awkward shape and one that you really couldn't heave very well. If there was an incomplete pass at one point in football, it was a turnover. So not a whole lot of motivation to try out this forward pass. But, however, in 1905 alone, there were 18 deaths and 149 serious injuries attributed to football. So the rules on the forward pass changed. But if you're picking up what I'm putting down here, someone like Feeney, who was playing center, the very middle of the play of a sport that was being played in an incredibly dangerous way at the time, well, you have to have some serious guts. That was Feeney. In 1912, Notre Dame registered a perfect 7-0 record. Both teams they tied the year before, Pittsburgh and Marquette, they actually defeated 3-0 and 69-0, respectively. The captain of the squad was the man who Feeney snapped the ball to, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin native Gus DeRay, an Irish legend in his own right. At the lead of the 1912 annual football review from the school paper was a bit of a poem to celebrate the season called That's Why. I won't read the whole thing, but here's how it starts. 
quote, We seen him when old Wabash hit that line. It was fine. Harvat, Feeney, Fitz, and Jones drove him back with aching bones, end quote. <laughs> Pretty cool to see the offensive line get first billing in the, in the poem for the, uh, to celebrate the year. But for what it's worth, according to the Chicago Tribune, who would select the All-Western Collegiate football team, they said that the center position for the All-Western team, the first team, is given to Des Jardine of Chicago, although Feeney of Notre Dame is nearly his equal. In 1913, Rockney, DeRay, and Feeney's senior season, they quickly rattled off victories against Ohio Northern, South Dakota, and Alma by a combined score of 169-7 to on November 1st, 1913. The team's biggest challenge awaited them, Army. The cadets were a very strong program out east, which was typically considered the best realm for college football at the time. Not that there weren't great teams out in the quote-unquote West, such as Notre Dame and Michigan, but most of the dominant programs of the day did reside in the Ivy League or a service academy. So squaring off at Army's home field, the plane, what Army was unbeknownst to was that quarterback DeRay and End Rockney had been perfecting all summer long while working as lifeguards at Cedar Point their passing routes, and their timing. So Al would snap the ball back to Gus. Al and his offensive line mates would block up front just a bit differently, creating something more of a protective pocket around DeRay instead of driving forward to clear running lanes. And DeRay would look for Rockney to hit in stride, as opposed to a pattern that came to a complete stop. So think of it like, DeRay was looking for Rockney on like a post pattern or a streak uh, as opposed to route like a button hook where the receiver comes back to the quarterback and kind of stops and waits for the ball. So <laughs> did I mention it worked? The routes in stride that DeRay and Rockney had been perfecting all year caught Army completely off guard and, and the Notre Dame squad completely routed Army 35-13. to DeRay completed 14 of 17 passes for an, at the time, eye-popping 243 yards. Folks, in 1913, that was a really good line for an entire season, okay? 14 completed passes, 243 yards. People just didn't throw like they, they did. They do now, and they did against, uh, Notre Dame did against Army. So DeRay had the game of his life. But needless to say, the advent and innovation of the forward pass would change the game forever. So the following week against Penn State, Feeney, who also played in the defensive backfield, intercepted a pass at the end of the game to preserve a 14-7 Notre Dame victory. After ripping off two more wins, including a 30-7 romp over the Texas Longhorns, the 1913 team finished with a perfect 7-0 record. So Feeney was once again selected by the Tribune as the second team All-Western center. Des Jardine was once again the first teamer. But Rockney DeRay and fullback Ray Eichenlob were selected as the All -Western, to the All-Western first team. The 1913 Notre Dame Football Review wrote that, quote, The Indianapolis youth, Feeney, was the key of the varsity attack and defense. He is perfect with his passes, or snaps, of the ball could open up holes on offense, and was a strong factor in our secondary defense. The assessment finishes, We will be sorry to lose Feeney, 
and his memory will live on with all those who have seen him play, end quote. For their four years on the gridiron for Notre Dame, Rockney, DeRay, Eichenlob, and Feeney, their teams went 24-1-3. Not too shabby. So it is the following year then, 1914, that Feeney returns home to the Indianapolis area. He takes on a coaching job at Greenfield High School with the football team. Now, is it possible that he brought the tricks and the tools of the forward pass trade with him? Well, I have to believe it. But how could I possibly know? Well, during an October 3rd, 1914 contest between Greenfield and Sheridan High School, Feeney's Greenfield squad won 19-12, with the, quote, main features of the game were the forward passes of Connie Day, end quote. So how about that? It can almost certainly be deduced that Feeney brought the tenants of the forward pass with him and happened to make a bit of a star out of one of my favorite baseball players. Of note, they actually defeated Broad Ripple the next week 60-0, and though there was no formal tournament to end the high school football season, Greenfield did claim the championship of Central Indiana that year. As for Connie, yes, he went on to have a prolific baseball career, and he would have the eighth most hits and turn the fourth most double plays of all second basemen in Negro League's history. But our story doesn't end there with Al. Feeney would spend the next few years in the Indianapolis area with some semi-pro football teams, and perhaps most famously with the Indianapolis M-Rose, that's E-M hyphen R-O-E-S, who were a premier independent touring basketball team, perhaps the best team in the entire Midwest. And I was able to find where he joined the team in 1915 and actually coached them too and played with them through 1919. Just a, as a bit of an aside here on the Emrose, they were active from 1912 to 1924 and reputedly won over 90% of their 425 games. So, what took him off the Emrose, you ask? Well, the almost 26-year-old had signed on to play with the legendary Jim Thorpe's Canton Bulldogs of the National Football League in late 1919. Okay, so let's unpack this. The National Football League, the NFL, was a new commodity at this time. And the Canton Bulldogs, which Canton, Ohio, happens to be where the Football Hall of Fame is located, was one of those inaugural franchises. Jim Thorpe was, and perhaps still is, the best athlete in history. Uh, he was an absolute dynamo. In fact, a lot of people at that time would consider George Gipp and Jim Thorpe among the best football players in the country. One was a professional, the other was a collegiate. So Jim Thorpe is a wonderful story in, its own, in his own right, so feel free to look him up if you don't otherwise have much familiarity with him. So yes, Feeney was Thorpe's, who Thorpe played fullback. He was his center, and he played for the Bulldogs through 1921. So add professional football player to the list. Absolutely amazing stuff. After his stint with the Bulldogs, it would appear as though Al retired from actively playing sports, though he remained involved in the local Indianapolis sporting scene, rising to the director of the Hoosier Athletic Club. He and his brother also founded their own furniture company, 
1932, Al was invited back to Notre Dame's campus, where he was a guest radio commentator on some Notre Dame football games carried by the national broadcasting system. His old coach, Jesse Harper, who in 1932 was serving as athletic director at Notre Dame, called him, quote, one of the greatest centers at Notre Dame. He was always the main cog in our line of 1911, 12, and 13. Al was an incredibly involved Notre Dame alum and makes and is mentioned repeatedly in the alumni magazine. But according to that Notre Dame alumni magazine in 1933, Al organized the Indiana State Board of Public Safety and became its first director. So that is actually how at that Greenfield Kiwanis speaking engagement, that's how he was billed. So that's where that came in. But he had a long career in law enforcement, including successfully running for Marion County Sheriff twice in 1938 and 1940. Marion County is where Indianapolis resides. But he was elected to many community-serving boards, and he was noted and awarded for his brand of conscientious law enforcement and an advocate for community-serving organizations. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, on November 4, 1947, Al, running as a Democrat, became the first Catholic mayor of the city of Indianapolis. (laughs) He was lauded by the Notre Dame alumni magazine for essentially conducting a one-man campaign. He reputedly had no publicity department, wrote all of his own speeches and radio scripts, and yet he still carried the election by over 6% over Republican candidate William Wimmer. Now do you see, how does this guy not have a Wikipedia page? Not only was he a professional football player for the Canton Bulldogs, but he was also a mayor of Indianapolis. I'm telling you, this guy needs a Wikipedia page. It's the last thing I do. But, unfortunately for our hero, on November 12, 1950, shortly after Mayor Feeney delivered a speech on his 58th birthday to the Daughters of Isabella, essentially a female auxiliary to the Knights of Columbus, He slumped in his chair and died of a heart attack. The Indianapolis Star wrote that the city, quote, won't be the same without Al Feeney. He was one of the most colorful figures in our city's history. He was a fine public servant, and as an individual, he won thousands of friends. His sudden passing ended a long career of public service marked by uncompromising honesty and a deep sincerity of purpose, end quote. And to think this all started by searching for information about one of my favorite Negro League's baseball players. Remarkable. And we will be right back. I hope you enjoyed that about my new buddy, Al Feeney. We kind of strayed a little bit off the beaten path as far as name recognition, but I still think it was a great story about, obviously, a really unheralded member of Irish lore, and not to mention just Indiana and sports lore. Quite a story he has, so I hope you enjoyed it, even if maybe that wasn't a character you were familiar with coming in. I think we're all a lot more familiar with Mr. Al Feeney as a result. Um... 
yeah, honestly, I researched that whole thing chronologically. So I started at the beginning with his Notre Dame career, and it slowly built into what it became. You know, it was the highly successful independent barnstorming basketball team, the Emros, and then it was the Canton Bulldogs. And every turn, I was like, my goodness, this is just getting better and better. And, um, you know, throughout the entire time he was alive, he was a uh, ardent supporter of Notre Dame and Notre Dame football. So he was all over the alumni magazine and all of that. And then it just culminated in becoming the mayor of Indianapolis. And so, my goodness, what a what a life trajectory. And unfortunately, he did not get to see his full term as mayor, but obviously very well thought of and remembered and fondly um, written about when he did pass. So again, hope you enjoyed that. I've got some show updates here. So I've got three episodes planned and I'm working on all of them simultaneously, which is probably not a great idea. But however, it is something that uh, I try to work ahead because it's, you know, we got some busy months here. Even though it's the football off season, this is typically a time when, you know, maybe a lot of people are still wanting to take in some Notre Dame material and they might turn to their favorite podcast. So uh, last year about this time, I did a three-part mini-series called Notre Dame in the Civil War. And actually out of those three episodes was one about Father William Corby, which despite this is a football podcast, that episode has actually risen to the top as among the most popular episodes in show history, which I think says a lot about you all. You know, while we all love Notre Dame football, we all do have a keen interest in what makes Notre Dame football and what makes Notre Dame football legends tick, so to speak. So I have a brand new installment for that that I am currently working on. Really neat one. So be on the lookout here this month, actually, January 2021, for Notre Dame in the Civil War, Part 4. As we roll into February, I have a special Black History Month episode planned about a subject that is kind of like Feeney, though he is much, much more recent. Uh, In fact, this subject is still alive. Uh, Someone who has not talked about or written about much in Notre Dame history. So we're going to talk about that. I don't want to spoil anything. But then, like I had kind of mentioned before at the beginning of the episode... I'm going to be doing an episode about Notre Dame's academic standards and, again, whether that has anything to do with, for better or for worse, the on-field product. I don't, I've got some ideas with how this is going to go. I'm looking for empirical data to back up some theories, so I'll be working pretty hard and diligently on that one. You can look for that one in February as well. So, got a busy couple months here. I know this is the off-season, as I mentioned, but, again... We stay busy here at Onward to Victory. So please, like, subscribe, do whatever it is that you have to do to make sure that you are getting alerted to all of the latest podcasts, all the latest episodes, pardon me. So if you have an iPhone, just click that purple podcast icon and again, subscribe. You'll have uh, notifications to take right to your phone when there's a new episode. So please, please do that. I just want to remind everybody to jump over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onward to Victory. Uh, I know some of us aren't of the Facebook persuasion, and frankly, I get it. However, if you are on Facebook and you're not following the page, please do. That's kind of show HQ, for lack of a better phrase. That's where all of the updates are kind of funneled through. All of the, A lot of the content, including that pictographic series about George Gipp that I had kind of talked about at the beginning of the show. So, 
Like I said, if you're not on Facebook, I totally understand it. But if you are on Facebook, man, go over to the Facebook page and give it a like and a follow. That way you get to all, all the show updates that way as well. Just as a quick reminder, this show has been sponsored by the Consensus All-Americans. That is Michael, Weston, and Brad. Thank you all so much. Now, if you want to become a Consensus All-American yourself, you listen to this episode, you really dug it. Uh, feel free to jump over to paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. I guess I'm remiss not to mention that if you become a consensus All-American, you will receive some show swag. So please, by all means, you know, support the show however you can, whether it's just liking or sharing the Facebook posts. But however, if you'd like to donate monetarily, that is just absolutely graciously accepted as well. And I'll make sure I get you some swag. Well, that'll about wrap me up, I suppose. I hope you enjoyed this episode, episode 37 in show history. Quite something there, too. 37 episodes in. But uh, I am going to sign off. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, win or lose, go Irish. (laughs) 